Hey, Liz. Hey, Olivia. How you doing? Good. Here we go again. Another episode. Welcome, listeners, to Women, Magic, and Power. We are doing it. Today we have Lorette Pruden. Lorette grew up in the Deep South um, when the Civil Rights Movement was really doing a lot of stuff during the 60s, and she has some fascinating things to say about that. And she um, was also one of four women to get a PhD um, in the mid-70s at Princeton University in chemical engineering. Um, yeah. There were more than four women throughout the 70s, but in her class at the time, she was one of four, which was pretty groundbreaking and amazing. Um, she worked as a research scientist for a long time and mm-hmm. in a very male-dominated field, and she um, is a consultant now. She works with small businesses. She likes to help people make transitions from corporate life into entrepreneurship and sort of live their dreams in a different kind of way. And she's a spiritual seeker too. She has a lot of interesting things to say. That's right. Enjoy people. Hi Liz. Hi Lorette. How you doing? Welcome to Women, Magic, and Power. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so grateful that you made time to join us and that you found our address and made it. (laughs) (laughs) It's an exciting morning, but it turned so far so good. Yeah, you're here. We're doing it. Um, Could you tell us the beginning of your story, where it started? Um, I am a child of the 50s and came of age in the 60s and was a young bride in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I'll get to the rest of that in a minute. But. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I grew up in the Deep South in the times of, of civil rights troubles. My father was a minister mm-hmm. and um, pretty deeply embedded in some of those things and some of that activity going on. I was dimly aware, you know. But I graduated from high school in the mid-60s, so in Alabama, all kinds of stuff was going bad Oh yeah. in that, in that time frame. Where in Alabama? In North Alabama, uh, which is a distinction like people make Central Jersey sort. You know. <laughs> North Alabama is really different from the rest <clears throat> of the state. It's the Tennessee Valley, and um, there is a lot of high-tech activity going on there. More to the east was Huntsville, where NASA is, uh, and Redstone Arsenal, and pretty high. I mean, it was rocket science right there. So I grew up in that that milieu, which I didn't realize it, of course, at the time, but we had very good schools in the area that I went. That's not true for many of the anywhere rural or or deep mm-hmm. anything right sure. but in that particular little corridor where i where i lived from when i was 10 till i was graduated from high school um the schools were really really good and you said um that your father was a pastor yes and that didn't influence you much to like your relationship with um religion or oh of course it uh, did bro- oh cuz you said dimly so i didn't know if oh, I well meant, like, he was yeah, I was dimly aware of some of the darker <laughs> sides of the civil rights oh, struggle is what oh, I meant. Oh. No, um, I, it, it very much influenced me. Um, we had, my parents had both been raised Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. and which was pretty common down there in those days. But they were much 
more liberal than socially liberal than the uh, most people in their mm-hmm. in their groups. I don't know how they got there. They they came from pretty traditional. Uh, small town, rural. My dad grew up on a farm. Um, they just were open-minded. Yeah. And they just believed that people were um, people and that they didn't really have a lot of the kind of racist attitudes that people expect of that place down there. Mm-hmm. Of course, when I moved to New Jersey, I found a different kind of the extreme racism sure. that's here. It's it's not the same, but it's the same. So my parents my parents were both very aware of all of that sort of stuff. So that really influenced you. So that really influenced me. And we had, you know, my father would go off to church meetings. And they would have, I remember one time he came home, there were some African pastors there visiting and, and they couldn't go out to eat. Yeah. There was there right. was a lot worse stuff too. So anyway, I was growing up in that and I was pretty active in the youth group in our church. Where did you go to college after you were done with school? I went to Maryville College in T- Maryville, Tennessee. It's a small liberal arts Presbyterian related school. It also um, was a kind of a hot hotbed of non-traditional thinking. Mm-hmm. Maryville was founded in 1819 as the Southwestern Theological Seminary. It was supposed to be the Princeton Seminary of the West, right? Because mm-hmm. Tennessee was the Southwest in 1819. Sure. <laughs> and it was integrated from the very beginning. In 1819, really? the college was integrated. It was been integrated ever since. Um, it just celebrated like what, the 200th anniversary just a couple of years ago? Except when it was illegal, made illegal by the state of Tennessee, when it was illegal by the state to be integrated, but as soon as that was let up, they, they brought people back in. So that was an, also an unusual community. In the transition, let me back up a little bit. So yeah. The transition from being Baptist to being Presbyterian Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. was an interesting one. And again, I was I was only ten when when we did that. But I remember the conversations about that. You know that really, my parents. You can tell already now. My parents were much too liberal for the Southern Baptist Church in that in in the late fifties. Mm-hmm. And he was a pastor. That must and have been he was tough. a pastor. So that even more so, and you know, so um, he had some friends that were Presbyterians, and they were like, "You need to come over here, you know, and go with us." So he did, but that required him to be reordained. The Reformed traditions, which are Presbyterian and the Reformed churches, and they didn't recognize the ordination that the Baptists had done, which I don't know if you've ever been to an ordination or ever really talked to anybody about the about their, their have, experience yeah, yeah. of ordination. It's quite an extraordinary thing. It really is. It's really, and, and so... I mean, I don't know how you could not feel it if you were there, no matter what you think or believe. It's mm-hmm. Something happens. Precious to the, per, to the person who's been ordained. And to, tell, to be told that that's not valid um, yeah. was, was pretty hard. That was pretty hard for my dad to swallow, and he, he talked about it. I mean, it was, you know, I was only 9 or 10, but I got it that that was a big, something big was really happening. Well, 9 or 10. Here we go again. Uh, um, yeah. um, we, we just find that it's a, yeah, it's an interesting age, right, for all of us. Apparently, mm-hmm. it leaves some kind of um, 
memory stamp that may carry along. But more than me jumping into that, I want to ask you, would you say that it had something to do with the fact that so you see the humanity in God in a way, kind of like, well, your this wonderful feeling that you felt when you were ordained now is invalid because humans are interfering with mm -hmm. what would be your relationship with God, which shouldn't matter, right? Who gives you the ordination? Right. You're right. just having that connection with a higher power. It shouldn't. Um, and I guess I'm now I'm asking you now at that age, maybe that brought you some awareness into the connection with a higher power versus the institutions that are handing that down to us people. Hmm, that's an interesting question. I, it certainly wasn't that intellectual. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure. It was not too long after that, maybe a couple of years, because we had moved to Alabama and that all that was done, um, that I decided I wanted to be baptized because the Baptists don't baptize children, mm -hmm. and the Presbyterians do. So uh, I had a really visceral spiritual experience of, of, about making that decision. Mm -hmm. This is in the Presbyterian Church. And now we're in the Presbyterian Church, and I'm probably thir 12 or 13, maybe something like that. And, and um, I just had a really, really... Yeah, visceral is the right word. I just felt something you know, mm -hmm. an identification with the Jesus on the cross that just felt really real. And I went home and I told my dad I had had that and I thought I was ready. And he said, yeah, that's it. But, you know, yeah. you're yeah. Right. so. Uh, was um, the Presbyterian Church integrated back then? Oh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> no. Well, yes and no. Some places it, it was more and some places it wasn't. Um, so, but not. Not really in Alabama, no. So there were segregated presbytery. At there were segregated at the congregational level and segregated at the presbytery level. A little more interaction at the next level. So there was a black presbytery in North Alabama. They needed some support. They needed mm -hmm. some, and so the presbytery of Huntsville, which we were a part of, um, decided that they would uh, help them out. So my dad, they picked him to, <laughs> there was something going on in this one church, black church in Birmingham, and there was something going on down there, and they picked him to go down and moderate this meeting, and, and he took the whole family. I don't know why, but anyway, we all got dressed up in our Sunday clothes, you know, went down after church, went down to their church service, and went and had dinner at the, at the minister's house. And I remember, this is, I don't know. It's not embarrassing. It's just, it was just so weird. They um, had quite a bit more money than we did. Mm. And their house was a lot nicer than our house. And their girls had fancier clothes than we did. So that was kind of eye-opening, too, because I had seen some version of of poverty among black people when I was growing up, um, but I'd never seen any middle class, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. upper middle class <clears throat> black families. I didn't, I had no clue. So that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so it sort of turns all the stereotypes well, on their head, exa right? Exactly. And that's just, that's just one little example of how we don't, 
if you don't know people individually, mm-hmm. you don't know anything. We also had a young black man who wanted to come to our church. You wouldn't think we would be sitting here raising our eyebrows for those of you who are listening on the podcast, (laughs) right? But like, so what? So, well, it was a big deal. Yeah, And the church elders had to weigh in on what they thought and everything. And the reaction of most of the congregation was it it really, it it was outside agitators. Outside agitators for the microphone. that had to be right oh, because sure, who yeah. in their right mind would want to do that if you weren't being paid by somebody? So that was the whole big thing. But do you remember how you felt through all of this? I was just mostly curious. At at, at I didn't really know you know how to feel about it. My, but my dad and my mom were they were like fine. Anybody can come to our church. They mm-hmm. had already had a conversation with the uh, governing body people about what will we do if somebody shows... It's quite likely that somebody is going to try to come and, you know, integrate our congregation. Mm-hmm. What, what are we going to do? They had already had that conversation and decided that, you know, it's good Christians, you can't really close the door of Christ's house to other people. And so we wouldn't do that, and they, he would be welcomed in. So all's well and good until he wanted to come to Sunday school. Now, Sunday school... The senior high Sunday school class. I'm never going to get out of college at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you there. Okay. The, sun, the, the senior high Sunday school class met in the pastor's study. And people freaked out that this young black man would be in that room in such close proximity oh my. to the girls. Mm-hmm. You can't make this stuff up. You cannot. So that was that was the real concern. And so they didn't let him come to our Sunday school class. He could come to church. The superintendent of the Sunday school had one-on-one discussions with him during Sunday school time. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't be in class. You know, was he, high school integrated? Barely. Hmm. Barely. It's just, just been a law passed of freedom of choice. Thing. Mm. So you could go to another high school. We didn't have any uh, black people in the high school that I went to. I went to another school my senior year of, of high school, and we had two young black girls who came to our high school. Mm. God bless them. I don't know. Anyway, so this mm-hmm. is all the cusp of everything changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, that three or four years, that was really... Things were really, really changing. So let's go back to college yeah. because I'm okay. so fascinated by this place that you went to, this institution that was integrated from mm-hmm. the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's quite remarkable. Yeah, it, it is quite an extraordinary place. It's a beautiful place. It's it's nestled in the foothills of the Chilhawee Mountains, as they say. A uh, view of... Um, of the mountains out my dormitory window on a moonlit night, you could see just ridges and ridges and ridges. Oh, that and ridges. sounds like magic. It's it was it is a magical place. There was intellectual freedom there that mm. I had never really ex- seen before. There were um, I don't know what the right term is to use. There were Black Americans who were born and raised in this country, descendants of slaves, and so on. There mm. were African American from Africa. Um, we uh, quite a few missionary children of missionaries who had been to China, maybe had been raised in China mm. or India. 
Men um, from like two black kids in school to right. all this diversity. Let's don't exaggerate it. It oh, wasn't all okay. this <laughs> diversity. <laughs> there were a few, one or two or three of each, of, you know. Um, but it was but a really different small Different kinds school. of people. Yeah. Different kinds of people. It was a really small school. You couldn't help but know everybody. Um, so what did you study? Chemistry with a minor in religious studies. Oh, <laughs> well, Yes. Because well, partly because it was a church-related school, right? But also because I was interested in that. Just I'm always been curious. I'm curious to this day about how people make sense of this life existence that we (laughs) that we exist in, right? Our surroundings, our internal, our external. Um, stuff. So I'm just always curious. My dad finally said to me when <laughs> several times, you know, you're a seeker. Let me jump ahead a little bit and you'll understand a little bit more about this. So, so Baptist to Presbyterian to sort of not, not very much, although my first <laughs> husband was, the reason I came to New Jersey, my first husband was a uh, seminarian at Princeton okay. Theological Seminary here. He was a year ahead of me and he came here. He became a minister but we didn't go to church, <laughs> and uh, and he became a pastoral counselor, and then that didn't work, and I remarried and and my to my current husband, and he wasn't he was raised Episcopalian, but he's not really doesn't buy all this Christian Christianity stuff. So, but he wanted some kind of spiritual life, so we wound up as Unitarian Universalists. Okay, a few years on. I'm working at the church plant sale, and I'm leading a small group discussion group at the local Unitarian Church here, which I've done for now 15 years at least. And somewhere in there, before my my parents passed away, my dad said, you know, I never would have made you for a church lady. (laughs) (laughs) Can't deny your roots, you know. Right, exactly. (laughs) We never know where we're going to end up. So, well, I haven't ended up yet. That's, that's one of the things. <laughs> or my, where we're going to land. My, but, um, <laughs> so I say that to, to just, that's the kind of this arc pen, of, yeah. my, of my religious practice, my formal religious practice takes that arc. And there's some bins in it and some mm-hmm. kinks and some That's what we want to know. Mm-hmm. So that transition between Baptist theology, which I was barely aware of, except you hear it mm-hmm. every Sunday, you know, and the more Reformed theology, um, that was kind of a tweak. <laughs> that was a big tweak. So through college, um, you're studying a uh, minor in religion mm-hmm. and then how is your relationship, though, with a higher power? Is it still very formal? No, I quit going to college. I mean, I quit going to church pretty much when I was in college. We had compulsory chapel thing. But by now, this is the late 60s, right? And so the revolution is happening. It was late getting to Alabama, the mm-hmm. revolution, but it was a little... So we got rid of all those rules and we got rid of the compulsory chapel. There was a Vietnam War was going on. There was just a turmoil. We marched. Or some things. It was also the beginning of the women's movement. Yes. Mm-hmm. There was still a lot of patriarchal protectiveness in the in the civil rights world in those days. Much more has been said about it than I could really say. But so the the guys went to the big marches hmm. in Washington and things like that. And the and the girls stayed 
back. And a lot of my friends had, were on the FBI list. You know, the FBI had that list of people they were watching. Later on, it became kind of a game to see See if people could get their get their freedom of information act out of the FBI. It was a crazy, crazy time. Yeah, and yeah. I was to back to your question. I was disconnected from the institutional church, yet not just disconnected, not um, broken away. Sure. You know? Well, I mean, there's a lot happening. Well, there was a lot happening. And, and I'm assuming um, a lot of questions are coming up too, right? Cause and a lot of questioning of institutions. Yeah, there was a lot of questioning of any institution that uh, you came along. Mm-hmm. I was far from the most radical or radicalized of my of my group. I was still kind of in that preacher's kid sort mm-hmm. of a mode and not making waves and what will the community think? And uh, but it was all it was all around me, and I was immersed in. And a lot of that kind of stuff. And so, you studied chemistry, and then, I, like, as the women's movement is coming along, mm-hmm. you find a job at? At a major oil company. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming to New Jersey. With I, a husband. With I married my, my college sweetheart 10 days after my graduation and came to New Jersey. And I got a job with this. I got a wonderful job, as it turned out. What did I know? But I got a wonderful job in a in a real research laboratory, a real think tank, pie in the sky, kind of blue sky research place with a major oil company, stirring up my molecules in the lab. <laughs> I used to say all the time, I I would much rather work with molecules than with people, because if I screw up a batch of molecules, it doesn't matter. I just go get another bucket full. If you screw up people, that's a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty... So now I'm in my 20s, right, and going to my 30s. I was pretty naive still. I didn't really understand much about myself at all. You know, we went to marriage counseling a few times sometimes, and I was like, I didn't even know what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, I had a lot of growing up to do and a lot of self-examination. Mm to do and um well you met young and yeah followed did. him here and then you were like well this... it was 21 when we got married yeah now these and days yeah. i mean you know it was perfectly normal <laughs> then yeah but now you think a 21 year old he was 22 and i was 21 i mean really yeah you're both figuring out like so, not even that the next five years are the years that you're like oh this is more who i am so right, of course yeah. you're so mm-hmm. so anyway we we had a rocky relationship and eventually we divorced but in the meantime i went to graduate school and uh in chemical engineering i had a fellowship to go to uh, one of our local esteemed institutions around here so that was a whole different thing that was a whole different world much more again a much more sophisticated world people who came from different backgrounds Mm -hmm. than than me Again, some international people. I think a real theme, now that I'm getting warmed up here, (laughs) um, in in both my professional and my spiritual development has been that I've spent so much time with communities of international people. So the laboratory that I worked in had people from all over the world. So that was a real 
eye-opening experience, too. <laughs> I remember I carpooled with two people sometimes, so they had these philosophical discussions on the way back and forth to work. And one of them was a Romanian Orthodox person, woman who had escaped from Romania, escaped literally over the mountains from Romania, leaving her daughter behind with her mm. mother until they could get the I mean, communist, communist behind the Iron Curtain kind of stuff. And the other guy was from the middle, and the guy was from the Middle East somewhere, and he was Muslim. So before my second cup of coffee in the morning, <laughs> riding to work with them, they are having debates like, whose God is more merciful? <laughs> That's a lot for the early morning commute. It was a lot. And this is way before um, conflicts between Islam and, and the West that have been happening in the last 20 or 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. This was almost 50 years ago. They were like, whose God is the most merciful? And I'm like, I'm sitting in the back, right? So, but but we talked about stuff like that all the time, sure. you know. And so it was a pretty open, open which is community. funny, right? Because here are all these like lab chemi chemistry right. majors, and they're talking about spirit. Like, because I couldn't think of anything more concise than like molecules and well, you know, exact and all these know, labs. Scientists are ex often very spiritual people, mm -hmm. and, and or artistic people. They, they look at the wonders of the universe and they ponder how that should be. Mm -hmm. Not everybody. And there, I mean, there's a real materialistic overlay of most scientific experiments. But I mean, it's, you know, but if you scratch a little bit under the surface, you will find that people have pretty deep questions. And we, we draw this um, in, in our culture, we've drawn this very sort of arbitrary distinction between science and yes. religion right and, and, and so we think of them as being in opposition but often they're asking the same questions and right. wanting to explain the same things right. and right. doing the same kinds of exploration just coming at it from with a different yeah. lens yeah and the, so that's that's one of the things that that really fascinates me now now is how that all fits together, you know. Well, and also your openness, because I think you were listening to all of these people from all of the different backgrounds, having all these conversations, and I think you're saying it had an impact in you because you were open to it, it definitely right? To connect well, with so, people. So going back to my parents for a few minutes, so their openness, even though it was very specific, about a very specific, you know, black and white issue, their openness, um, let it be okay for me to be, a, but actually all my whole, all of my siblings are, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but it makes a difference. Oh, it makes a huge difference. You know, that just the fact that you, it's okay to ask a question as opposed to, you know, well, this is the way it is. This is the way our family does it. This is what we're, we're yes. Mm -hmm. So we could always ask a question. So that seeking piece, and I think being curious is the best, mm -hmm. the mm. best thing. Now I'm, you know, on the other side of of whatever the middle of my life is. I'm definitely on the other side of it. <laughs> and um, and I'm still curious. That's good. I'm still curious. And so... Were you the only woman in your lab? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact. And when, when I started to work, I was the only... I was the only woman on the professional staff, except the librarian. Of course. Okay. 
we had other women. We had women technicians, and of course there were secretaries and people around, but I was the only woman on the professional staff for four years, and that was a whole trip in itself. And then when I went into, when I went to graduate school, we were, uh, there were four of us in the chemical engineering department. We were the first four. We weren't all exactly in the same class, but we were there together. Mm-hmm. And, um, four out of how many-ish? Four out of the whole graduate student body wasn't very big, maybe 50, 60, you know, mm-hmm. less than 10%. Mm-hmm. For sure. sure. So you were in the PhD program? Mm-hmm. So this was in the mid 70s? Mm hmm. So, what was it like being a woman in a <laughs> chemical engineering PhD program oh in God. the mid 70s? It was crazy. It was really crazy. They just weren't, they just didn't know what hit them. They weren't. <laughs> they, that's the truth. They weren't used to, the, you know, they weren't, they weren't used to us. They were um, praying. Well, I was at Princeton. I, I'm not trying to pull any plugs on that. But, and they had just gone co-ed in the early 70s. The first class graduated. You, in, you se- come from integration in the South. To, to co-ed co-ed at, at an Ivy League <laughs> university, right? I know. Right? It's pretty wow. like it's head snapping. I'm surprised my head's still <laughs> on my neck. Anyway, so I got there. Um, at, the professors were still trying to get the sexist jokes out of their lectures. I mean, they've been t- telling mm. the same stories and the same jokes for oh 40 years, some of them, you know, and they were just really trying. So they were trying hard. And I don't, uh, I certainly don't want to say that I had a a bad experience there. I did not. But it was challenging. Sure. It was challenging. And um, I, I really want to, you know, give it give it up for my faculty and the and the people that were there, the other students, the faculty um, in my department anyway. Um, they were very supportive. Not about everything, you know. And I mean, they... They decided against giving tenure to a, the woman faculty person who came in when I was while I was there because they were afraid. And a couple of them said many years later that that was really why that woman went on to to run a ex- esteemed department at another university and be invited into the National Academy of of science and engineering, which is like the pinnacle. So she could have done that from Princeton, but they were they were afraid. I don't know what they were afraid of. The young faculty were afraid of the old faculty, and the old faculty were afraid of whatever they were afraid of, and they just couldn't pull. They just couldn't just change. They, they just couldn't do it right, and just plain old sexist baloney. You mm-hmm. know. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was plenty of that. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, it was just, and that went on. That that's probably still going on. That went on all the way, all the way through. I guess I yeah. I got toughened up to it. I mean, I was mad about it. Don't don't get me wrong. I was really mad about it, and I made a lot of noise about it. Back at work, <laughs> I stumbled upon a group of women down in the in the conference room. There was some training session or something going on. Because I always wanted to know everything that was. It was a small place too. There were only hundred, hundred people in that lab. So I was like, "What's that?" So I marched into the laboratory director's office and <laughs> said, "What is all that group of women downstairs? What's going on?" He said. He just looked at me. <laughs> he said, "Oh, that's um, 
that's an assertiveness training class. You frowned. Do you know what assertiveness training is? No. Oh, okay. Do you know what assertiveness training was? I mean, I can guess. Okay, ladies, here we go. So assertiveness <laughs> training is was something that went on in corporate America um, to help women speak up for themselves and learn, a, you know, different to techniques and things to speak up for themselves so that they wouldn't get squashed and like they did and all these other things. It actually was very helpful. And eventually somebody figured out that the men should have some version of that so that they know would know when they were stepping on people's <laughs> toes that they needed to that we needed to assert ourselves against, right? Anyway, assertiveness training was a big thing. I can't believe nobody remembers it. I mean you don't remember it, you're too young, but like it's not lost. Anyway <laughs> Anyway, so they were having assertiveness training and, you know, practicing ways you could respond to being dismissed and mm. in meetings. But it's and, important, though, right? Oh, it's very important. Right, right. And it still happens, it, you yeah. know. It's, I say an idea and nobody listens to it. And the guy next to me says the idea. What a brilliant idea. Mm. That, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I was just going to say, one of my um, first jobs, it was probably my second job, I was working on a Senate campaign. Mm. In New Jersey, and this is in the mid '90s, and it's for an incumbent Democratic senator, mm-hmm. and I was supposed to work in the research department, and I'm on summer break from college, and I walk in the first day, and it's me and I don't know six or seven guys, mm-hmm. and these guys, you know, had all already been working there, and the room. The walls of the room are covered with um, torn out page six pinup girls. Of course. From, you know, whatever raggedy newspaper. And I took one look around and I looked at the guy who was in charge and I was like, these need to come down. I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I came back the next day and they were down. Raised by a judge and a lawyer. You go yeah, my all. mother gave right. me assertiveness training uh, assert- every, day. Right. Yeah. every day. Yeah. But that's not even even now. Right. That's not necessarily something uh-huh. that people feel like they have the right to do. Right. So yeah, I mean it's, there's still a long ways to go with that. So anyway, the laboratory director said they're doing assertiveness training down there and uh, you're the last person around here that needs that. <laughs> <laughs> You're okay. <laughs> you so I this. took that as a compliment, but mm-hmm. I was still really curious. I, I want to touch a little bit on um, women's spirituality and and uh, magic and and things. Please. Um, partly at the Unitarian Church, there's a there's a a stream of paganism and and the Wiccan thing that's that's there. So I encountered that a little more form, formally there. Um, I also um, encountered some ideas through, through the school community we sent our children to, which is Waldorf Education. Put a plug in for that. Okay. Uh, don't think it'll make you uh, Wiccan, but um, <laughs> it's a wonderful education. But it has a broader spiritual perception of things. So there was that. And then I got interested because I'm really interested in food, and you know I run a farmers market, and 
interested in nutrition and food and the chemistry part of that and started to learn a little bit about healing, herbal mm-hmm. healing or I'm sort of in my 30s and 40s now I'm raising my children and trying to learn all this stuff when my mother says to me oh she's there visiting they didn't come that often and she picked up a book I had of, of, of herbal medicine she said oh I didn't know you knew anything about this and I said well I really don't I'm just kind of getting to look and she's didn't she tell me that her grandmother who she was really close to when she was little girl, like up to six or seven when her grandmother died, um, was in this little mountain community in Tennessee, was the was the medicine woman, <laughs> was the the granny woman, the med, the you know the herbal had woman been from down the, to you from the British Isles, right from the mm-hmm. uh, that whole stream was that it passed down only in the not in the sense of specific knowledge, uh-huh. but just sure. in the sense that 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 way of seeing no, the energetically. world mm-hmm. energetically mm-hmm. comes, passes down, right? Mm-hmm. So I had no idea. And then my mom told me, there's some really, you know, she was little, little stories about going out with her grandmother and collecting herbs and baskets and helping her dry them and tie them up and all that kind of stuff. But But that was so old-fashioned and country yeah. <laughs> right and it's oh, that's just too country um my mother was a modern woman uh, and so she raised us with dr spock and pediatricians and not stuff there, out of the backyard you there know? is a theory um about how things can skip particularly on constellations mm. and you know family dynamics mm-hmm. and how things can skip a generation or two and then come back around this whole thing about passing it down energetically speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, like, good and bad, right? Like, right. certain things that may repeat the stories right. until, like, so did you feel a little assertiveness when she said that? When she said you're. Oh, I felt, I felt great when she said that. I was like, mm-hmm. oh. So I have this materialistic, scientific, chemical knowledge, right? And then there's this other piece. And so um, I'm still not an herbalist and I. Still, will take antibiotics if I need them, and I, you know, <laughs> sure. But I, I have a much more of an appreciation and and some it's a more wholesome of a practice of, of mm-hmm. a more wholesome approach, and and um, you know, we have a biodynamic farm here in our community, which if that's another conversation, but that's a very spiritual practice of farming and herbal medicine. Mm-hmm. So it just all sort of started to weave weave together Mm -hmm. so let's talk because we found out the story about how like you made it through college and all of those parts going on but this spirituality part that like you were just Mm -hmm. talking this other side of you not the material chemistry part um you would say it started growing more after your second marriage when you found this church and then like how did that manifest to you like what's the what was the connection with the higher power um, I think I just began to feel more connected to the natural world. Um, I also had a personal um, spiritual crisis. I mean, that, that's it turned Those out health. to be that it was a health crisis, but it turned out to be a spiritual crisis. Mm-hmm. And the and the coming out of that <clears throat> put me. Um, you asked earlier about a direct connection to my higher power. That put me in much more of a direct 
connection to my higher power. I think all everything from when I said I, I had that that visceral feeling and I decided mm-hmm. to get baptized, from then until that crisis, everything was pretty intellectual. Mm. I was still fascinated. I was interested mm-hmm. in the theology and the arguments mm-hmm. and, the, you know, all of that, but it was it was very much on an intellectual level, not really a personal level for me um, until then. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to kill myself if I don't make a difference. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't suicidal, but I mean, what the path I was on was not mm-hmm. the right path for anybody, but it certainly wasn't the right path for me. And so I had to get off of that path. And take another one, which led me into um, not an organized religion, although I still, you know, practice some of, of my organized religion. But a more personal a approach. A more personal development approach and more, you know, peeling the layers of the onion, as we say. Like, what mm. what makes Lorette tick? Why, what mm-hmm. are the, what was I trying to cover up? What was I trying to hide from? Why was I self-medicating? Yeah, what was the 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 layers, right? Yeah, that are the layers, right? So put in place with structures and ideas, and you right, have to like and all you know, and so we could go strip yourself from it. We could go all the way back to this whole conversation that we've had and point out to where those layers were getting built up, mm-hmm. right? But um, so I was in my late thirties when I when I started that part of the journey, and it's been over thirty years now. So I'm really. Um, so now you say you you have a close relationship with now uh, I do now like, I do and I it, mean for the last thirty years which yeah is amazing. I mean it t- and it takes different you know it, it morphs around mm-hmm. it takes and that's things. what I'm, it should be right I guess I mean I'm still curious so now you know I, I uh, advanced between you know from Baptist to Reformed theology I'm sort of out into the. <laughs> The wider world. I just mm. I read a wonderful book, Karen Armstrong. Oh, she's great. Um, anyway, she writes a lot about theology, but she's written a book called Sacred Nature, mm. and and it's I will put it on my list. Kind of a survey of how different world religions integrate their understanding of humanity with nature. Mm. It's really fascinating. One of the points that she makes is that. It's only the Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that have this man has dominion over the earth piece, right? That's right mm-hmm. out of Genesis. Um, everybody else is like, oh, we're just part of the whole thing, right? Maybe in the middle, you know, maybe between the animal, mineral kingdom this way and the hierarchies of the spiritual world that way but anyway we're not above everything Mm -hmm. or anything really and that's kind of where I I am now I'm much more I'm feeling much more connection with the natural world and I'm not the only one I it's it's be lots of people there's all these books now about the trees and the forests and the micro razai and the and the connections there and the single singleness of the being of the forest yeah that's beautiful Mm -hmm. Uh, it's beautiful and i really am identifying a lot with that so that's where i am in my 
spiritual journey now. I'm yeah, it's more integrated in the it. heart, which right. is yeah, yeah, yeah. just like rest nice in that connection. It. Right. Yeah, I like that way to put it too. Does this connection with nature and the wider world and cosmos does it help you feel more powerful? I think the answer is definitely yes. I couldn't give you an example though. Maybe I maybe I haven't gotten quite there yet. Maybe I feel less powerless. No. Cuz there's plenty of places where where we can feel powerless in our in modern environment, right? Mm-hmm. I feel stronger in my own I don't know if convictions is the right word, just my own perceptions, my own perspective of things. I don't need other people to tell me how to think or feel mm. anymore, which, you know, I think as a younger person, you don't, you don't know how, what you think or feel, and you, you know, you try on a lot of different, at least I did, try on a lot of different mm-hmm. costumes to see, see which ones feel. And so it's partly the stage of life that I'm in, I guess, but I... Well, because also I feel like you probably lived power in a different way, right? Like when you're talking about being one of four and all of these stories that you were telling us and experiencing like how powerful that can be, but it's not a personal power, right? Like it feels like now it comes full circle more into like, this has nothing to do with all the ego stories of power versus the... Yeah, you could, I could, I have been gotten really caught up in a lot of the ego stuff of what I've told you, because it's like a nice story of um, overcoming obstacles and Mm -hmm. and standing up to uh, powerful uh, forces and being recognized. And it doesn't take away from that. And those are are important stories. Yeah, Yeah. those are all, I mean. Because those are important things to do. Yes, and I'm, and I'm very, I'm honored that I was able to be on this path. Mm-hmm. that path and maybe inspire some people somewhere along the way, which is one reason I'm happy to be doing this with you because that is certainly not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Well, let's tell people what you're doing now on top of managing the, the farmer's car, oh, like market. the farmer's market. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. So remember I said I, I didn't, I was happy to work with molecules and not people. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to, I could mm-hmm. mess up the molecules in it. I well, was waiting to come back to that. I grew, I grew out, <laughs> I kind of grew out of that too. So partly through this spiritual work that I started to do that I was telling you that I started to listen to people, deliberately making a practice of listening to people and not having to be the, have the last word or ask the first question or, or anything. And, so somehow that that got recognized in my workplace. Not nobody ever really said that, but that's what I think happened. And so, um, so I moved away from the little beakers full of molecules into being a supervisor and a manager and lead teams of people and be an executive coach and stuff like that. While I was still at my corporate job, and we got gobbled up by a bigger oil company, and I had to figure out what I was going to do. Next, so um, and so, what I did was I took those people skills that I had be- be- began developing, and I became a consultant and, and a coach, executive and small business owner. Coaches is what I do now for a living. Um, well, I mean, and if I may add, yeah. it also forced you to start helping others, which you know, who knows if you would have done. I understand that you have the connection, but right. like you wouldn't have this availability 
for right. other people. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's all it's all good, but I love doing it. So what I do now is I um, coach privately and in small groups, small business owners. Yeah. The kind of people that are like me. We had corporate job, many of us. We had, uh, we did fine there through no fault of our own. We put us all out on the street. And it happens over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It just goes from one industry to the next industry to the next. So it was chemical engineers, then it was the bankers, then it was the IT people, and it's the pharmaceutical people, then it's a you know, then it's the bankers again, then it's the IT people again. Yeah. <laughs> Tens of thousands of people get put out of their livelihood in the prime of their work life and they have to figure out something else to do. So those are the people that that I work with, as it turns out. I realized those were the people that were coming to me. I uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called Formerly Corporate, oh, F-O-R-M-E-R-L-Y, um, Mindset Shifts for Success in Your Own Business, because it is not the same to be in your own business versus working for somebody else. That's my professional world now, and how to help people build successful businesses. So I'm a big advocate of local business. Yeah. Um, I founded the Local Business Association in my town. So that's what I do. I'm a small business coach. Backtrack a little bit. Okay. Um, Because when you were talking about the Unitarian Church, you were talking about um, the Wiccan wave. And since Mm -hmm. we like to talk about magic here Mm -hmm. as well, if you could tell us more about your experience with that. Um, and how it shows up in your life and how it uh, brought you to where you are? People just started showing up in my life and books and movies and old folk tales. It's like, why would that book fall out into my hand? So things like that. I mean, it's, what do we call it, synchronicity and Mm -hmm. serendipity. Serendipity. uh, Both of those things have happened many, many times so it became like a tool in my life, an extra tool to connect with something more. I get, yeah, I guess that's way. That's a, that's a fine way to put it. It's just, right, because I'm I'm like another, looking at the whole span, like you were talking about yeah. it earlier, and like it sounds, you know, starts formal, traditional, traditional, mm-hmm. and more intellectual, and then it goes into like okay, crisis, crisis, and that kind of like generates disconnection mm-hmm. and more probably fed more the intellectual part, right? Because mm-hmm. you're still in all the questioning between what's happening in the world and what may be happening inside of you that you may or may not be paying attention to, but it's happening. And then eventually you pay attention to what's happening. Mm-hmm. And now you have a connection with nature, the weekends, the Unitarian Church. It sounds like all of these things became like a way to broaden the view from what you grew up in. And... Mm-hmm than like tools, because it doesn't seem like you just buy into something else. You, you didn't become a Wiccan. Right. Yeah, I see what you mean by tools. Yeah, so it's... Um, I think like it different goes, lenses. It goes back, that's a, good, that's a good metaphor. It goes back to that, to, to that whole, you know, being open to other, to other ideas. I really, so let me go back to the Waldorf school for a minute. When I first got there, they were they were having a discussion about was it too Christian? And the the lead teacher, bless his heart, <laughs> he's he's having to 
to moderate, lead this discussion, try to explain in 15 minutes, right? So he drew a big circle, and he put a little dot in the middle of it, and he said, this is the spirit. Whatever you call the spirit, whatever you want the spirit to be, however you were taught to think of the spirit, this is the center, this is the spirit, it's the one, it's the what, you know, whatever, right? And he said, wherever you start on the circumference of that circle, on a spiritual journey, you are headed towards the center where the spirit is, and every path leads to the spirit. And I just think, I think that's the answer. For me, every path leads to the spirit. And another cautionary moment happened for me when I read um, something that David Spangler wrote, if you know who he was. He says, the problem with this thing about every road leads, every path leads to the spirit is that every path has a really hard place on it. Wherever you start, every spiritual path has a really hard place in it. And we all get to some slough of despair in our lives. Those two images, the circle with the path to the spirit Mm -hmm. and the fact that if you hop off the path, when you get to the hard part and you go on another path, you ain't skipping the hard part on that path. Yeah, you're not going to get to the center. You're still starting over. You you have to go through to come out the other side. You have to go through the hard part. So, so there's my philosophy on that, Joe. Well, I um, I love that philosophy. I yeah. I would say I believe, and I think it's this part about the the rough part that you're talking about. I believe um, on thanking crises, right? Because when you have mm-hmm. a crisis, that's kind of like when you're gonna hit the rough, mm-hmm. like the rough part. You're either gonna have to find a connection to something right. bigger to get you through it, or you're gonna end up finding other solutions that may be more mundane um, or earthly in the sense of like you will self-medicate or you will find Mm -hmm. other things that will help you numb what's happening. Mm -hmm. So you either have to face it, you know, head on or you will numb your way through it. And if you numb your your way through it, you will keep repeating that experience over and over. Yeah, 100%. Um, Yeah, it doesn't go away because you ignored it. No, mm. no. Mm-hmm. So, and people live some like oh, lots of people, people live their live lives their ignoring life. it. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. It's yeah. not a given that you're gonna that you're gonna get get through that. But no. so I love what you're saying numb. because there is for me in personally mm-hmm. that I've touched many paths. Grew up mm-hmm. Catholic, have a much broader view of the world right now, but I don't in, in a way to like add on to what you were saying. I don't like my path has become wider meaning it's not Mm. just the one Mm -hmm. way to get to the center to Mm -hmm. the center there's but but yes definitely going through the hard part like not ignoring it and if and if my path is wider when I'm going through the rough part. I have more, and that's why I was saying tools, tools but I have yeah, more. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Right? Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's an interesting way to put it because there's, there's nothing wrong with any spiritual path that people are genuinely working. I, I'm in, in, and I, you know, on my intellectual side, I'm really fascinated with that and, and how people go. But on a personal, emotional side or, or your relationship side mm-hmm. of things, you just can't. 
you just can't float there like, oh, there's nothing going on here. I don't know what you're going <laughs> to What? So, <laughs> although it's easy to fall back into that. Well, and it's, you know, and it all takes time. It doesn't mean that you're going to face it head right. on right away. Like, right. yeah, it all has a process, right? right. But, uh, but being aware of all of these things available yeah. for us to get through the hard time so that on the other side, you can integrate it all, um, make such a more powerful existence. Yeah, so yes. it makes it much easier to accept whatever circumstances you find yourself in mm-hmm. to um, you know, make the best of them. So it has helped me do with acceptance um, of myself and of other people, which makes it much easier to get along in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Allowed me to let go of a lot of my judgment, and so it's very liberating in in that sense. And I'm very grateful for all the experiences that I've had. Some of them were hard, but I'm pretty good with where I am. Um, so, if you were talking to the little women, like the nine and the ten year olds, mm. what would you tell them about the lessons you've learned, or ways they can claim their voice or own their power? I think you have a right to your own perspective. The way you see things is valid. Mm. You may not see everything, right? Your parents probably can see where that road is leading, but maybe before you do. But, but you, you know, you have a right to your I think that's the most important. Little girls still, I think, aren't validated in their right to see the world as they see it. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. because if you feel strongly in that, in that, then you can ask questions, or you can challenge authority, mm-hmm. or you can accept authority, or you you know you can um, you can blaze new trails, or you can can ride happily on the road in front of you. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's no, it's not wrong to do either one. Hold your ground. Mm. I love to speak to um, groups of young women about scientific careers. I do that sometimes. It happens in elementary and junior high school. So to back to your 9- and 10-year-olds, mm-hmm. it happens that people tell them they're no good at math, the girls can't do that. And if you don't help them, somebody doesn't help them out of that soon enough, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. Because you have to know that and you have to have that grounding you have to take algebra, and you have to take trigonometry, and you have to take calculus, and you have to—I mean, you used to have to take it in college, and now you have to take it in high school or junior. I don't know where they are now, yes. junior high school. But <laughs> I mean, you, though, there are foundational things that you have to learn in order to have access hmm. to the kind of career and, and education that I was privileged to have. You know, I mean, at that. Yeah, it makes at, a difference. At that level, yeah. somebody has to tell you that, the, you know, don't listen to the people who say girls can't do this. Don't listen. And it's better, but it's still very easy to derail. Mm-hmm. Derail somebody. That's yeah. still. It's so much better, but almost so much more insidious now. Like, it's it doesn't happen the same overt ways that it used to, to the same degree. But there's a lot of subtext. The last few weeks, our daughters have been having playdates, and they're up here, right, running, running businesses. Their businesses. I know. Right. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, I grew up playing family. 
<laughs> or school. <laughs> or school, right. 100%. A teacher or a mom. Right. Those who are the role plays in, right. like, I mean, and whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. we turned out fine, but but not fine. This is why we're doing a podcast, right? Like, these girls are running businesses. Well, but you can't you imitate what you don't see. Exactly. Oh, that's so true. And that's how children learn. They learn at this age by imitation. And you can't imitate what you don't see. Mm-hmm. So we could go on, but that's maybe perfect. you're trying to Thank wrap us up. Thank you so much, Lorette. Thank oh, you. Well, Thanks for coming really again. Fun. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but... Um, we'll send it your way when it's ready. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Tune in next week, everyone, when we talk to my good friend, Florencia Lalora. She'll tell us her story about adoption and how she found her adoptive parents. She also became a family therapist that specializes in adoption. And don't forget, you can catch up with any of our episodes at any time in any of your favorite platforms. Thanks for listening.